You lecturing or you plexuring? You lecturing or you plexuring? I'm technically lecturing. All right. But I would like to point out that I disagree with the David Morris definition of what a lecture is. Amen. Last yeah. night, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amen. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so very much for inviting me yet again this year. Elder Spickard, yes. Elder Kennedy, who isn't here, Elder Pickett. Thank you so much. Thank you. Elder Kennedy, hiding back there, behind my daughter. I'm just so very glad to be here, and I have to tell you honestly, I, I don't understand it. I can only assume that this is just the goodness and the grace of God. And, and I'm not exercising false humility here. I'm not trying to gain empathy from you by being self-effacing. The simple fact is I don't understand it. But I just assume that God has shown favor in your eyes toward me, and I'm just thankful as I can be for it. Because I have lived long enough to have a pretty good sense of what I'm like. And if God can be this good to a buffoon like me, then, then that's just grace upon grace. And, and I, I really appreciate it. So, I've been assigned a topic. A couple of years ago, I was in Texas with Elder Wren, and I preached what I called the Sovereignty Series. For five days, I talked about the implications of God's sovereignty and how God's sovereignty affects the way that we pray and the way that we suffer, the way that we evangelize, and the way that people are saved. And so Elder Pickett asked me if I would do the same thing here and uh, pare it down to three days. So we're going to talk about sovereignty in prayer. Tomorrow we're going to talk about sovereignty in suffering and then we're going to talk about sovereignty in evangelization. And I'm happy to revisit this topic because since the last time that I worked my way through this series, I've had a series of life events that have increased my understanding of God's sovereignty in the midst of everything that we go through. So. So let's start at the very beginning. I'm not going to assume that you know anything. I'm going to start at the start because let's be honest, human beings left to themselves can't know anything about God. If you want proof of that, walk outside, go 10 minutes either direction, and you're going to meet people who know nothing about God. And yet on a Wednesday morning, you've driven all the way from New York from Kentucky, from various parts of the United States. You've come up from Atlanta so that you can sit in a church on a Wednesday morning and listen to a a little bald, white, scar-bellied preacher talk about God. Now, what what is it about you that makes you different from the people 10 minutes either way up the street? They're busy doing their job, doing their life, and giving no thought whatsoever about God. And yet you, for some reason have devoted yourself to the things of God. Well, why is that? Well, I argue that Christianity is a revealed religion. It is not something that human beings just naturally know. It is something that God has to teach us. 
Now, he has taught us Christianity in the book, in the Holy Bible. Yes, yes sir. And so we study the Bible to find out more about God, what he's like, what his nature is, how he acts. And one thing that we find out about God over and over again throughout his word is that he is definitionally, self-definitionally, he is sovereign. Now David gave us a good working definition for that last night. By the way, many of the things that David said last night cut about 15 minutes off my, my message this morning. So, and that's good because I have way too much material. So that, that was really good and helpful. Sovereign. What we mean by that is God can do whatever God wants to do anytime God wants to do it. With whoever God wants to do it as many times as he wants to do it, wherever, whenever he wants to do it. And he doesn't do what he doesn't want to do, no matter how many people might want him to do it. And he doesn't do it because that is his choice, that is his will, and he is the only entity in all the universe that has an absolutely free and unencumbered will to do whatever he wants to do. Yes, sir. That's what I mean by sovereign. And God defines himself that way all the way through the Bible time and time and time again. Now, when I taught the Sovereignty Series down in Texas the first night, we just spent an hour talking about and proving that God is indeed sovereign, that he is completely and utterly in charge. We don't have time to do that this morning, but I'm going to take a few selected passages that just read on their face. I don't even have to do a great deal of parsing away at them. I don't even have to interpret them for you. On their face, they say that God is sovereign. And if you have read the Bible and you have come away with any other conclusion than that God is sovereign, then you still really haven't read the Bible. I had a friend come to me a couple of years ago and say, the sovereignty of God, I see it now. I see it in the Bible. Now that I see it in the Bible, I can't unsee it. Everywhere I look, it's right there. It's staring me in the face. And he said, now that I know that God is sovereign, there's nothing to go back to. What do I go back to? He's not sovereign? So once you see the sovereignty of God, not only will it give you a better understanding of what God says about himself, but it will bring you a great deal of comfort in the midst of the things that you're going to go through in this life. Because I don't know how the people who don't know God, who don't understand the Bible, who don't know God's word, I have no idea how they get through this life. I think that's why there's so much alcohol and so many drugs and so much pornography and so much. I think that's why that all exists. It's because people are looking for some way to just get through every day of this life. But we who know that God is sovereign and that the things that occur in our life are according to the plan of a sovereign God, we have the confidence. As Henry Watson just said, we have the faith to go ahead because we know that God is faithful. Okay, so we call ourselves Sovereign Grace. That's the name that we use. We're going to talk about a few different definitions and nicknames for what it is we believe as we work our way through this series over the next three days. 
We are a sovereign grace conference. We wear that name. And what we mean by it is God's completely and utterly in charge and salvation is a result of God's grace. And so we say that it is the sovereignty of God, the absolute authority of God, that leads to anybody being saved because, again, people, by their own nature, can't know anything about God. So if people know anything about God, it has to be because God was kind enough to introduce himself to those people. And then after he introduces himself, He tells us what he's like. He tells us his definition of himself. And we have to pay attention to what he says about him. Because I like you, I love you, I have great fondness for you, but I don't care what you think if it doesn't align with what God thinks. You can have all kinds of ideas and opinions and human-based philosophies, and none of those things can save my soul. None of those things can give me the hope to get through this life. So you want to talk about God? Have at it. I'll listen. But the minute you wander away from what God says about God, I stop listening. So here's what God said about God. In Genesis 17.1, I mean right away, immediately, God speaking to Abram, who's 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. The Latin phrase for it is omnipotent, all power. Now, this is God himself introducing himself, defining himself, and saying what he's like. And if you don't agree with this, you're wrong. Because God says, I'm God Almighty. And if he defines himself as the God who has all the power, all the might then how much power does that leave behind for you? None. No, none. He's got all the power. He's got all the authority. And right away, right at the beginning of his book, he calls himself by the proper name. He gives himself the name El Shaddai. I am the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Omnipotent. I'm in charge. Now, you may not be able to flip to all these verses. Maybe they'll show up up here. I'm reading from the NASB. The King James will show up behind me. But Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that, For by Him, by God, all things were created both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So how many things hold together? All things. God is in charge of everything. 
Psalm 115, 1-3, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. Look at the next phrase. He does whatever he pleases. Now, this is important to understand. First off, it says, he does whatever he pleases. So you know for sure that whatever he's doing, he's pleased with it. He's pleased to do that. Now, if you are going through some troubles in your life, some struggles, tomorrow we're going to talk about sovereignty and suffering. If you're going through some struggles, it's good to remember that God is pleased to do this. If this wasn't what God had intended for you, it wouldn't have happened. If he intends this for you, then you're going to go through it. And sometimes as you're going through it, the only peace and safety you're going to find in the midst of it is, well, he's pleased by this. This must be for my good. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods, small g. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Where? In heaven, and in earth, and in the seas, and in all the deeps. Okay, that's pretty much everywhere. Any place you can think of is in that list. And he does whatever he pleases all those places. Now, something you need to know about God, the way that I defined him a moment ago, is that he does and doesn't do whatever he wants to do and not do. And he does not change. And he does not change his mind. He does not change his intention. He does not change his thought pattern. In fact, if God ever changed, that'd be the worst thing that could ever happen. Because in order for God to change his mind, that would be tantamount for him to admitting that the first thought he had about it was a mistake. He accidentally had a bad thought or tried to save somebody and then found out that he just couldn't save them, which would make them more powerful than him. But since he is the almighty, all-powerful, then there can't be any power greater than him, which means that he can save and do whatever he wants to do. So he doesn't have to change his mind. He doesn't ever have to go, oops. I didn't know Alton was going to do that. I had every intention of saving him. I chose him before the foundation of the world. I wrote his name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Gabriel, get me an eraser. I have got to take him out of the book because I had no idea he'd be like this. And that's part of the amazing thing of God's grace is that He knew that you'd be like this. And sure enough, you're like this. And he loved you anyway. And saved you anyway. And redeemed you anyway. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he can do whatever he wants. And what he was pleased to do was save you despite you. 
Some people argue that the book of Job is actually the earliest book in the Bible since you don't see any reference to Israel or the temple or any of that. Job was probably a contemporary of Abraham right around that period. We don't know for certain. But, but if, in fact, it's the earliest book in the Bible, then you really have to pay attention to what God says about God in Job. Yeah. And what does he say? I'm in charge of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Job 40, starting at verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I think that's God's sarcasm. Yes, sir. Which I think is one of my more godly qualities. Okay, I just threw that in. I will ask you and you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you can be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. And then I will confess to you that your own right arm can save you. Did you hear what God said? He said, do what I can do. Array yourself in splendor, majesty, and eminence. Praise Him. Show the outpouring of your anger and your wrath on the planet and humble all of the proud. Praise Him. When you can start doing what I can do, then I'll admit that maybe you're something. But until you can do what only I can do, admit it. You got nothing. couple more verses. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long ago, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Accomplish. I will decree the end from the beginning. From ancient times, I'm going to declare what's going to be. And then because I have all the power, I'm going to exercise my almighty power to accomplish the very thing I have decreed from the beginning. How do you deal with a God like that? The one who never changes. That's why at the end of Romans 11, Paul finally reaches the point of saying, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay. I think I've got you right where I want you. I think you should be convinced by this moment that it's not just a little hidden thing in the Bible anywhere that God is sovereign. It's actually something that is said repeatedly, Old and New Testament. It is foundational to Christian and Jewish theology. The understanding of the Bible is replete with God is sovereign. God doesn't change. God makes up his mind. God does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. God is in absolute control and you can't talk him into things and you can't make him change his mind and you can't do anything because God is absolutely sovereign. Now, that God says, now come talk and pray to me and bring me all your supplications and talk to me about what you want. Wait a minute. You're the absolute sovereign God. You're the one that doesn't change. You're the one who is in absolute control of all things and you always do your good pleasure in absolutely every circumstance. And that God says, come talk to me. That's amazing. First off, it's a remarkable privilege. Because I know people who don't want to hear from me. And that the Almighty, that the maker of heaven and earth, that the all-omnipotent God, who's in charge of everything, invites me to come and talk to him about my measly little life. What's bothering me? What upsets me? What I want to talk about? And he says, come and talk to me. So that's what we're here to talk about this morning because I got an email recently from somebody who has heard my teaching about sovereignty, which has been a good many years now. I've been saying God is absolutely sovereign and That upset my correspondent, and so he wrote me an email. And he said, well, you've already declared God to be absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control, that he doesn't change his mind, that he does everything that pleases him. Why then would you pray to a sovereign God? You're not going to change him. You're not going to talk him into anything. You're not giving him new information. He already knows everything. Why would you pray to a sovereign God? My answer to him was, why would you pray to a God who's not sovereign? Because think about it. Your prayer is dependent on And inspired by the fact that God is, in fact, sovereign. 
That's good. Yeah, yeah. It's real funny listening to our Arminian friends. I don't know why I walked down here and looked that's you right, right in the eye. That's all right. But, that's all right. But I was so fully confident that you were going to agree with me. That, <laughs> so I didn't mean why would you, but... But look, let's be honest for a moment. Even Arminian folk who believe in their own free will saving them, when it comes time for them to pray, they pray like God's sovereign. That's right. Yes, they do. Yeah, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because they end up saying, save so-and-so, help so-and-so, heal so-and-so, do this and that. Well, if man had an absolutely unencumbered free will then God would not be able to supersede the free will of the individual. That's right. That's right. I went to a church out in Los Angeles back in my early days. Tom, one of our deacons, is here with me. It's the church I met him in. We've been together a long time. I hate to break this to you. We're old. And, and the church that we were part of out there was an Arminian church. And the pastor used to say, God will never encroach on your free will because God is a gentleman. Too much of a gentleman. He'll never encroach on your free will. Listen, you need God to encroach on your free will. It is absolutely necessary that God encroach on your free will. Because what does your free will want to do? Your free will wants nothing to do with God. Your free will has no interest in the things of God. You never woke up one day and said, you know, I'm enjoying this sinful life. This is going good for me so far. But you know what I think I ought to do? I should give up my sinful ways and go search out God. I mean, even Paul, even Isaiah say there's no one that ever stirred himself up to seek after God. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. So you're not the one. So you need God to encroach on your free will, which I don't believe men have free will. But you need God to encroach on your will because you need God to tell you everything that he's about because, as I said at the beginning, Christianity is a revealed religion. So your prayer is predicated on the fact that God is sovereign. You want a sovereign God and you want to pray to a sovereign God because he has the power to heal the people you pray for. He has the power to save the people you pray for. He has the power to change the circumstances that you're in. If he's not sovereign, then he can't do any of that. And what's the point of praying? You want to pray because he's sovereign. And you want to pray because, get this right, he does violate man's will. Thank God. Sovereignty is not contradictory to prayer. Now let's talk about prayer for just a moment. Prosuke, if I'm saying that right, I think is the, the noun form. Prosukamai, the verb form. And the word is, is broken up into this. 
the pros part at the beginning of it means toward. The rest of it means, means to ask, essentially. So the word pray, as you look at it all the way through the Bible, understand that what it's saying is ask toward God. Now the very fact that God would use repeatedly the word ask means that he intends for you to come to him and ask for things. Now God's providence does not make him some kind of distant, impartial observer. God is eternal and omnipresent. When I was a kid, and, and perhaps you had this thought too, when I was a kid I thought, well, how can God hear everybody's prayer? I mean, if everybody's praying all at once, isn't that just a huge cacophony of noise coming his way? How can he possibly pay attention to my prayer? And that is why the idea of God's omnipresence is so important. Because he's not only everywhere, but he's everywhere at once. Which means that he can hear your prayer. And he can pay attention to your requests. Every creature, every event, at all times, all places, are fully present to God all the time. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around because we're very finite creatures. So it's hard for us to imagine a God who is absolutely present. I think we can state decisively and agree that God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither even the shadow of turning. So we agree that God does not change. Based on that evidence, I have to conclude that God does not change his mind, does not change his will, does not change his plan, does not change his decrees. So... Does God's sovereignty ultimately undermine the idea and the concept of prayer? Well, the answer is no, even though that sounds hard to gather. The answer is no, and here's why. First, we know that God's sovereignty is not in any opposition to the prayer of adoration. If you're called to worship and adore God... Certainly his sovereignty is not contrary to that. And certainly the knowledge of God's foreknowledge and determinate counsel does not negate any prayer of praise. We worship God, we praise God, we extol God, we bless God, we say good things about God, and none of that is contrary to his sovereignty. In fact, I would argue that it is the very knowledge of his sovereignty that inspires those kinds of prayers of praise. If he can't do anything for me, if he can't save, can't heal, can't help, well, then there's no reason for me to also say good words about him. But if he is indeed sovereign and capable and able of helping me, then all the praise, all the honor, all the glory does belong to the Sovereign One. Now, he's got angels 
around his head, according to Isaiah, who are saying over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I figure if he, who can arrange his heaven any way he wants, he can make his angels do anything he wants, he can live in any kind of environment he wants, and he wants constant praise. He wants constant worship. He wants his angels admitting nonstop that he's holy, holy, holy. So that's the beginning of our prayer. Think about it. The Lord's Prayer. The very first thing that he tells his disciples in their learning how to pray when they come to him and say, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Teach us how to pray. The first thing he teaches them is, our Father, now we know who we're talking to, who is in heaven, now we've identified Yahweh in heaven sitting on his throne. What's the very next phrase? Hallowed, holy, separate, sanctified is your name. Now that's where God places his own personage and name and reputation as ultimately holy. And then you'll hear people use it like a cuss word. Do you see why now God would say things like, don't take my name in vain? And by the way, that was not a suggestion. That was a commandment. Praise the Lord. You will not take my name in vain. My name is holy, holy, holy. So even with everything we know about God's absolute sovereignty and authority, nevertheless, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul writes, pray without ceasing. Continue in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Because God desires that his people be, as we heard last night from David Morris, that God wants his people to be praying people. Which is why, again, this is just sort of axiomatic for me, since we're talking about spirit-filled witnesses, people who have the spirit of God within them become praying people. And that's why, earlier I talked about you can go 10 minutes up the street either way and find people who know nothing about God. You know what you won't find them doing? Praying. They will not be praying. Because they don't have the Spirit of God. So therefore, we make an equation. We say, well, human beings without the Spirit are just not praying people. But human beings with the Spirit of God become praying people. So God in His sovereignty sent His Holy Spirit to those people He chose and made those people into praying people, which means since God only does those things that please Him, He was pleased to send His Spirit to create praying people. Now that ought to inspire you to pray. All right, we've got to move. I'm going to read a little bit of John Calvin since we do go by the nickname of Calvinists. Let me read a little bit of John Calvin to you because I operate on the assumption that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim Reed stuff. So thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. 
But someone will say, does God not know, even without being reminded, both in what respect we are troubled and what is expedient for us? So that it may seem, in a sense, superfluous that he should be stirred up by our prayers, as if he were drowsily blinking or even sleeping until he is aroused by our voice. But they who thus reason do not observe to what end the Lord instructed his people to pray, for he ordained it not so much for his own sake as for ours. Okay, now this is where it gets good. I hope it's been good up till now. Okay. But this is where it really gets interesting. This is where the the rubber meets the proverbial road. This is why we become praying people. Because we have to learn dependency on God. And through the operation of prayer, through the operation of communicating with God and bringing all our needs and wants to him, we are admitting that he is the answer to our needs and wants. That's right. Amen. We're admitting that he is the only one who is going to be the solution to our problems. Amen. We're bowing humbly before him and saying to him, I've got nowhere to go. I've got no other choice. I've got no human capability to solve these problems. It's going to have to be yours. You're going to have to do it. And I do firmly believe that that's the essential purpose for prayer. Is that God, in conforming us into the likeness of his son, causes us repeatedly to come back and talk to him about everything so that we recognize that he is the source of everything. We know that prayer is essential to the Christian life. Every New Testament writer, and indeed, Jesus himself prayed. So Jesus taught his apostles how to pray, as I mentioned in Luke 11. John the Baptist had taught his disciples, and so they said to Christ, teach us how to pray. So praying was an essential portion of his teaching ministry because human beings cannot and do not know anything about God. And so Christ had to come to the planet to tell us about God. And one of the things that he had to teach us was how to pray. Now notice there again, that means that prayer doesn't come to us naturally. We have to be taught how to do it. Teach us how to pray. And I think it is that natural fleshly tendency to not know how to pray that makes prayer sometimes so difficult for us. And let's admit it, sometimes prayer is hard. Sometimes we just get dozy. (laughs) I heard a preacher one time say, and I just always like this phrase, he said, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to put me in hell forever. That's true. That's why the Holy Spirit has to clean up your prayers. Those utterings 
And those groanings have to be cleaned up before they're taken to God like a sweet odor. So God has provided everything necessary for our prayers. Have you ever found yourself praying to God and just saying, Please, just, just, please. I don't even know what else to say. I'm just stuck here. Just, just please. In those moments, I trust the Holy Spirit to turn that into, you're the almighty and sovereign and holy and wonderful God. And one of your chosen elect people is crying out to you. I'm so glad that the, that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayers to a righteous and a holy God. Think about it again. I just keep trying to be rational in all of this. Think about it again. If an angel walked through the door right now, all the way through the Bible, when angels show up, people get down on their face. So imagine an angel walks through. Let's make it more exciting. Let's make it a Christophany. Walks through the door. Are you going to tell him what you think? Are you going to say, oh, it's good you're here. Let me tell you about me. Absolutely not. So you think that you can stand before the almighty, righteous, holy God who is encased in a light that no man approaches and talk to that one? And that's why I think it's so important that the Holy Spirit does intercede in our groanings and in our prayers so that they are made righteous, holy enough to go before a righteous and a holy God. And if you know that about your prayers, it ought to inspire you to pray more. It ought to inspire you to know that whatever it is that you're struggling to get through to Him, He not only knows, but He's got His Spirit bringing it to Him. Because He's so sovereign. So sovereignty and prayer are not contradictory to each other. I keep saying over and over again. Look at this. In the book of Revelation, prayer is described as a sweet odor. I don't have time to get into the Old Testament typology of that, but in the Old Testament there were certain sacrifices that were known as sweet savor offerings. And essentially what you would do is take the best of what you had and burn it for no other reason than to send a sweet odor of sacrifice into the nostrils of God. That's... That's remarkable. That God would be pleased with anything that human beings do is remarkable, but that he wants these sweet odors sent up to him sacrificially. Okay, so John writing in the book of Revelation says, and when he had, this is Revelation 5, 8, and when he had taken the book, that's Christ, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, brought before God like sweet odors, sweet incense. Revelation 8, 3 and 4, And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints, upon the golden altar 
which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Oh, suddenly your prayers become much more a part of the worship of God. Prayer is not just us bringing our desires and our wants before God, but the simple act of praying to God becomes part of the worship of God so that the prayers of all the saints are put into golden bowls with sweet incense, bringing a sweet savor into the nostrils of God as the prayers of the saints rise up to Him. So remember that. Next time you have difficulty praying, next time you're having a hard night with your prayers, Start with you're holy, you're holy and you're holy, you're holy, 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 you're nothing but holy, you're all the time holy, and the next thing you'll find yourself doing is just praising Him. And as you pray and adore Him, as you do what Jesus said, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. By the way, do you remember in the Old Testament that the Old Testament high priest, who once a year would go into the holy of holies, Before he could go into the holiest place, he had to have a particular outfit on. He had to be wearing particular clothes. But he most importantly had to have a white turban on his head with a golden plate, which meant that the foremost thought on his mind when God looked down at the high priest interceding for Israel, the foremost thought that God wanted to see in gold said to him was holiness to the Lord. The first prayer starts with hallowed be thy name. Holy, holy God. So when you start your prayer, you're holy, you're good, you're gracious, you're you're kind, you're loving. You've really been so very good to me. And then after, and I find this fascinating, after our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, then thy kingdom come, then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After all that, you finally get to give me something to eat. You don't get to start with give me something to eat. No. You don't even start with forgive me my sins. You don't start any of those places. You start with which God you're talking to. And you're talking to the righteous, holy God the sovereign God, the in-control God, and after you have identified all that about him and admitted that his kingdom is coming and that his will will one day be done on planet Earth when his glory breaks out on the planet, only after you have established all of that do you get to, and I need bread. Be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says. Anybody been anxious lately? Yeah, that's easy, isn't it? We're just anxious people. Um, I made a deal with uh, Pastor Scholler out in the parking lot. I said, if I start to get long-winded, just send up a flare or do this. Or You haven't done it yet, so I'm thankful. But... <laughs> But I keep having thoughts that sort of elongate the process here. But I heard a psychologist one day say, and I just think this is helpful. 
He said, nobody ever had a nervous breakdown worrying about today. No, no it's next week. What's going to happen a month from now? A year from now, what's going to happen? But today, I got today. Today I'm dressed. Today I'm probably going to eat. Today I got today covered. But God, what about next week? That's why it's so good to remember that you're praying to the God who has tomorrow in his hand. That's why it's good to remember that he's the one who declared the end from the beginning. He's the one who's working all things for our good and for his glory. And when you know that, then you can do what Jesus said. Fret not. Don't worry about things. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Worry about nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Because let's be honest. First off, every bad thing that ever happened to me, and I'm (laughs) 61, and every bad thing that has ever happened to me in my life, I'll be honest, I didn't see coming. I just got broadsided by it. Wow, that's amazing how many people are nodding agreement. Because the bad stuff just shows up. And every good thing that happened to me in my life, every great and grand thing that ever happened to me, happened despite me. Which means I'm not in control. I don't cause the good, I don't cause the bad. But the God of glory causes the good and the bad. And since I know that he's in charge of every good thing and every problematic thing that occurs in my life, I can genuinely fret not. It's going to go the way it's going to go. I like the phrase, it's going to be what it's going to be. And sometimes when the stuff happens, I just go, well, it is what it is. It just is. I don't have the power to change it. I'm going to pray to God to help me have the endurance to go through it. Devote yourself to prayers, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, thanking God for everything. Prayer, most importantly, ultimately, is our agreement with God and His Word. And that's really what's changing because of prayer. We're not changing God, but in the process, God is changing us. He's bringing us into conformity with his word. David touched on it last night. He said that a good way to pray is to pray God's own word back to him. And we see several examples of that throughout the Bible. I don't have time to go through all my examples, but... James 5, 17 to 18, talking about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Now, why? Why did he pray that it wouldn't rain? Because God said, if you chase after foreign gods, I'm going to withhold the rain. Israel was chasing after foreign gods, so Elijah prayed. Think about it. 
living in a desert environment where they are vitally dependent on rain because God said he would withhold the rain. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years, which means he prayed to his own detriment. He prayed to his own hurt so that God's word would be glorified. That's a great way to pray. Just take God's word back to him. Daniel was sitting in Babylon. Daniel apparently had access to Jeremiah's writing. He knew from Jeremiah that the captivity in Babylon of the Israelites was going to last 70 years. You get to the end of the book of Daniel and Daniel starts praying to God and he starts admitting that they're not very good people, but he prays for God's grace and he says, you've said it's going to be 70 years, just keep your word. 70 years is coming up, just make it 70. And then God sends an angel to tell him 70 times 7. But God's word is prayed back to him. Look, there are lots of grand and glorious promises in God's word. Promises of your salvation, promises of your safety, promises of your endurance, promises that you're going to make it all the way through and you're going to get safely home. If you don't know what to pray about, pray that. Take God's promises back to God and say, you promised. You said I was going to get through all of this. And right now, it doesn't look like I'm going to get through it. Right now, it looks really hard. It looks really difficult. I am trusting you to get me through it because you said so. Pray that to him. There are some biblical prayers. We heard one of them last night from Acts 4, 24 to 29. There are some that are just dependent on God's sovereignty. They start by saying, you're really sovereign, God. You're in charge of everything. Now, because that's you, help us. Okay, this is the last thing I want to really drive at. We've talked a couple times this morning about the Lord's Prayer. But when Jesus was giving the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, and by the way, I, I keep calling it the Lord's Prayer because I grew up Lutheran. And so I just use that phraseology because it's implanted in my brain. But it's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord could never pray this prayer because it includes forgive us our trespasses. And he couldn't have ever said that, so it's rightly called the disciples' prayer. But look at the material surrounding the prayer. Jesus says, Matthew 6, starting at verse 7, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But do not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. Okay, okay. So, sovereign God again. Your Father knows what you need. And it's his good pleasure to give you what you need. Now go ask him for what you need. That is the perfect combination in my mind of God's sovereignty being the inspiration for prayer. That he knows what you need. 
You know he knows what you need. But you have to go ask him for what you need. Matthew 6, starting at verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things. For your father, your heavenly father, knows that you need all these things. He knows you need food. He knows you need drink. He knows you need clothes. He knows all that. In fact, he promises all the way through the Bible, constantly and continually, he promises his people two things. Do you know what the two things are? Food and raiment. That was my daughter who answered. <laughs> Gets pretty bad when the family already knows the answers to all my questions. Food and raiment. That's all you're promised. Food, raiment. Something to eat, something to wear. Think about first century Judaism. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have sealed packages of TV dinners. Every day, job one, find food. Every day. You got to go find food. So you can see the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Because God has to feed people daily or they have nothing to eat. So God promises food and raiment, food and raiment, food and raiment. You see that phrase all the way through the New Testament, food and raiment. That's all you get. In dealing with the Israelites when he took them out of Egypt and he took them for 40 years through the desert, their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. Food and raiment, food and raiment. Manna from heaven. Here's something to eat, here's something to wear. Food and raiment. You see that all the way through the Bible. All right, how many of you are honest enough to admit that when it comes to food and raiment, you've got way more than that? Too much. I'll bet some of you have storage bins. Because you got too much. God who has only promised you food and raiment has given you so much more. There's no, there's no car promise in there. there. There's no house promise in there. I love you sisters, but I have to pick on you for just a moment. Have you ever seen a woman standing in her walk-in closet full of clothes? Just waving in the breeze. And she, gets, she says, I got nothing to wear and nothing here is going to help me. I got nothing. Because we're so spoiled. Because we have so much. Because we go to the refrigerator to get our food. And we know that we've got enough food to last us for days. We can be driving down the road and feel slightly peckish and decide to pull into a McDonald's, talk to a speaker, and five minutes later somebody hands us a hamburger to eat. Food and Raymond, we got so much food. I'm wearing a suit right now, this coat right here. I haven't worn this coat in months. Because I got so many clothes. I got so much raiment. 
God has been so good. Here's my point. Say thank you. Yeah. Say thank you. God has been so good to us. And we take it for granted so easily. We start thinking we deserve it. Listen. Matthew 7, 9 to 11, Jesus speaking. What man is there of you whom if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, I love the next two words, being evil... Know enough to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Pray to Him. Oh, I've got quotes from A.W. Pink here. I've got verses on top of verses, but we just have to stop. The good news is the Holy Spirit is always going to be there enhancing our ability to pray, taking our prayer to God, and making sure that, that God answers our prayer. I'll just say this and we'll be done. Listen, God answers our prayer, but He answers the same way that a good father answers our prayers. I have two kids, one of whom you heard from just a few minutes ago. And when they were little, they would come just before dinner because they were hungry and they would say, can we have cookies? And my answer, because I love them, was no. Because if I give them cookies, it's going to spoil their dinner. I want them to eat the good food. Now, after they've eaten the good food, my answer is yes. And sometimes with God, the answer is no. Not now. Not yet. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Send your son back to get us. Take us home. Not yet. You know, that's what Jesus said when his disciples asked him, will you at this time return the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? His answer was, not yet. I'm going to do it. Not yet. So sometimes when you pray to God and you don't get that immediate answer you're looking for, He's answering your prayer. It's easy for us to think, well, I didn't get an answer. I didn't get anything back. God didn't hear me. Oh, He heard you. And in His sovereignty, in His doing whatever pleases Him, He is pleased to take you through whatever He's going to take you through. And that takes us to the subject of sovereignty and suffering. That's tomorrow's subject. We'll see you then.